Hi guys, welcome to the latest episode of this unbelievable life. Here with me today is my dear friend Andrea Pennington and Miranda Classic with the Amniotic Fluid Embolism Foundation. Um, so I wanted to start out with having Andrea tell her story. For those of you that um, follow along with me, we recently, the realtors in Indiana just did a blood drive and she was my why um, because her story is so touching. So I'm going to turn it over to Andrea to tell her story. And then when she's done, um, Miranda, again, Miranda Classen, the executive director of the Amniotic Fluid Embolism Foundation, will be giving us even more details on the condition. So Andrea, I'm going to turn it over to you. Hi, everyone. Nice to see you guys. Um, so in May of 2020, um, right in the thick of COVID and everything else that was going on in the world for that, um, I had gone in for my last, um, it was my high risk, so to speak, for my gestational diabetes um, appointment to be released from them and to be able to be induced the following week with my OB. Um, the high-risk doctors had decided, hey, we don't want to release you. We want you to stay. Um, we want you to have the baby a week early. There were some signs and just different things with my blood pressure and whatnot um, that prompted them to say, hey, we need you to stay. So we stayed. Um, we were there overnight, uh, then had started the full induction the next morning, which was May 20th. Um, I Fast forwarding to whenever I had woken up from everything that had happened. I actually forgot most of these details. Um, but when they did our, my induction, um, they gave me my epidural. I then maybe, I don't know, I think it was within an hour or two after that, that they, I told my nurse who um, I still keep in contact with today um, that I couldn't breathe. And immediately she jumped into action. She got the doctors, she got everything in order. Um, they rushed me to an emergency C-section, um, got my baby boy out. Um, he went into the NICU. He also had a knot in his cord. So not only did we have uh, what they determined was the amniotic fluid embolism, uh, but he had the knot in his cord as well. So he was rushed there. After the emergency C-section, they started to close everything up and, and get me back to the um, uh, recovery room. And then that is whenever I had hemorrhaged. Um, from hemorrhaging there, overall, um, I think they had said I lost about two liters of blood. Um, they had to, again, we were in the thick of COVID, so I wiped out our blood bank, blood, blood bank here locally. Um, they had to fly blood in from other states, and it was such a big deal. Um, I think the hospital had mentioned that it was maybe about five years prior that anything like that had happened. So it was not a common situation, let alone what we were doing um, and what we were needing from that. Um, but my doctor had called in a couple different surgeons. Um, ultimately, I had to have a complete hysterectomy from it. Um, when I woke up, I had been on a ventilator for about four days. Um, they, you know, I was awake actually with that ventilator in for about 24 hours before they completely removed it. Um, I thankfully, as of now, um, have not had any major lasting effects that we know of um, that stem from that other than my short-term memory. And I tend to uh, forget certain words that need to go in certain places, um, but it's nothing that we have not been able to manage. So um, just like a 
you know, a few moments ago, I couldn't think of the, the recovery room. Um, and that's just little things like that that I've learned to work with. Um, but in terms of my overall health and my baby's health as well, um, he is now a thriving two and a half year old. And we are very fortunate, but I know there are so many people who have had worse situations. Um, and it, the team of doctors that came together, there's really no explanation of how it all worked out um, other than it, they just knew what to do. Um, and it's, it is something that is just not well known. And I'm, I'm thankful to be one of the unique ones that are still here with it um, to help everybody learn about this condition during labor. Thank you so much, Nikki, for having us and Andrea. Um, you know, thank you for sharing what is um, undoubtedly probably one of the most difficult times of your life um, and that of your families as well. Uh, just hearing you sort of recount your story, um, so much of it, you know, resounded with, with my own story as well of sort of not expecting to go into labor and then, you know, being induced and um, having just having this serendipitous moment where everything is lined up and, um, and then learning about AFE. So if I can just take a moment just for, you know, for listeners is just, just kind of describe what amniotic fluid embolism actually is and sort of who's at risk and how often this happens. Um, so just to put into context, um, there are 4 million births in the United States every year. Um, 3.95 million of those go really, really well and smoothly. And, um, you know, just as you sort of hope and imagine that it would be a really um, smooth transition into, you know, becoming a family or growing your family. Um, but in, in roughly 50,000 births, um, women will experience a traumatic or severe maternal event, um, whether it's through gestational diabetes or hypertension, um, a hemorrhage, which is incredibly common. Um, then and there's an even smaller subject of that, which is about 100 women um, like Andrea and myself will experience this rare, often, often fatal, acute, sudden, unexpected complication. So an amniotic fluid embolism is when the amniotic fluid enters the maternal circulatory system, which it does in many of those other millions of women that give birth and don't have it, this incident. But in some of us, when um, these cells enter our body, for some reason, our body has this overabundance of a reaction to it, similar to like an allergic-like reaction, similar to anaphylactic shock, where we go, just like Andrea was saying, I too went from laboring and, and having a, you know, talking with my nurse to suddenly saying, something doesn't feel right. I'm, I'm having a hard time catching my breath. Um, in, in my circumstance too, was um, I went from saying that to having a seizure and going into a complete cardiac arrest. So you go from having, you know, this normal laboring experience to suddenly things take a dramatic turn. And this is why um, AFE is so difficult to treat for, for clinicians is because what Andrea was sharing with having gestational diabetes, or if you have hypertension in pregnancy when they're checking your blood pressure, is that those are predictive, there are predictive tests that test women on a regular basis throughout their pregnancy to determine if they're at risk for this or if they are truly developing diabetes or high blood pressure. And with amniotic fluid embolism, there's no way to test this. 
um, you know, Nikki, I know you're a beekeeper and so you're probably familiar with anaphylactic shock from bee stings, um, you know, these unsuspecting uh, stings that happen. And so I often use um, bees as a, as a way to help describe this, which is, you know, Nikki, for you, a bee sting may not, may not be just but a small irritant, right? But for maybe Andrea and myself, it might put us in anaphylactic shock. Why that occurs, we don't really know. Why, why Nikki, would you not be as, you know, have such an overzealous response and why would Andrea and I have that response? And so that's what researchers and um, clinicians are trying to identify is why are some women at risk? But what makes AFE so fatal is because these, these healthcare providers are being caught off guard. We don't know who's at risk. And then there's really no time to react. And then if I can take, just kind of go down maybe um, more of a nerdy trail, if you will, is maybe sort of explain um, the two pathways that are involved when these cells hit the maternal circulatory system, um, what sort of happens in the woman's body. And so uh, it sets off two cascades of events. One is cardiorespiratory collapse, which is your heart and your lungs, which means that your oxygenation and your blood pressures are affected. And then simultaneously, it sets off this clotting cascade. So um, the clotting cascade means that um, when Andrea was sharing of her, of your why, of why you needed so many blood transfusions is because yes, it's- Yes, I forgot to mention that, that I had, um, that I also went into a DIC, which I don't know if that's, that's where you're going with it. Um, but yeah, I did forget to mention that within that um, intro with it. No, and so, you know, DIC is a really complex bleed. And so for people who may not be in the medical field, um, anytime someone gets a cut, your body sends out these platelets and these sticky things, which is why you get kind of this oozing and you get a scab over a cut, is your body is going out to repair that cut and that wound. Well, what happens in our bodies is, is that um, in Andrea and my circumstances, we did have a C-section cut. So we had a fairly large incision. Um, but it's not just that, it's that the body is getting these clues that say, um, hey, there's this big wound that you need to repair, but it gets confused and it sends out these clotting factors all over the body, doesn't send it to the right spot. And then the body essentially uses up these, these sticky parts of the blood and it can no longer clot these wounds. But simultaneously, it's doing damage while it sends out these clotting factors throughout the bloodstream, it's actually damaging all the other blood cells that are in your bloodstream. So now you have massive bleeding and no ability to clot it. And all of this happens at the same time. And so I often tell our poor healthcare providers that are put in these circumstances is, I feel like they're constantly chasing their tails, trying to treat the patient and the symptoms they see in front of them. Now, most often the fastest symptom that presents itself is the cardiorespiratory where it's, I can't, I can't take a deep breath. Something doesn't feel right. I'm having, and, and suddenly we're becoming hypoxic where our oxygen is not getting to our heart and our brain. And then you have this full cardiac arrest because the lungs start to shut down. Then simultaneously you have these bleeds. Now, just to put in perspective in hospital cardiac arrests, when the heart stops, not from a um, not from a heart attack. A heart attack is when something breaks free in the, in the cardiovascular system and stops the heart from pumping. Ours just suddenly arrests where it no longer has the electrical pulses to actually keep it beating. 
So the difference with this cardiac arrest in hospital settings, in normal hospital settings for non-pregnant people, a cardiac arrest in hospital has very poor outcomes as well. So now you have a pregnant patient who's harder to give CPR to because she's got a big belly, you know, that's either got a baby still inside of her or that baby that's been recently delivered, but her uterus is still very large, putting pressure on the important veins that bring the heart return back to the heart. And you've got this bleeding. And so when you look at just normal in a hospital setting and people who have heart, heart attack or cardiac arrest, it's hard enough to get them back up online. But now we've got this complex patient who's pregnant, maybe has another, a, a child or two in, inside of her and is having this bleeding cascade. So it's really no surprise that amniotic fluid embolisms, you know, account to anywhere from 60 to 80% mortality in these circumstances. Now, those numbers are starting to come down because our healthcare providers um, have a lot more uh, resources available to them for these circumstances, both in blood transfusions, but also in cardiorespiratory collapse and the training, and they have special devices that help with CPR. We have more imaging that's available. So over the last 20, 30 years, as intensive care medicine has gotten uh, more robust um, and more hospitals have access to ICUs, we're seeing survivability certainly change. Um, but in terms of AFE in general, you won't find it in the what to expect when expecting. And I think Andrea, I'd probably share for both of us in that we didn't read about this in the books. So most of us have no idea this can even happen to us. And oftentimes I, I, I'll hear from our community that says, you know, of 1300 women that are part of our, um, a part of our organization, but I've never heard of this before. And I often say, you know, that's, that's the unfortunate thing is even if we had heard about it, there really wasn't anything we can do because at this point we have no way to test and we have no way to predict that this is gonna happen. So that's what our organization is doing. Our organization, the AFE Foundation is based in California. We're an international organization. We support families across the globe and we support healthcare providers that have been impacted or affected by AFE. But we're really working to try and change, uh, change these, these facts and these figures. We're trying to figure out who's at risk for this. We don't even know why it happens. So if we can get to the why, the etiology is the medical term for it. If we can get to why this happens, then we can start to develop treatments and we can start to develop predictive tests to determine who's at risk. Because quite frankly, and I don't mean to frighten anyone, but this is the truth, is that all 4 million women who give birth every year in this country are at risk for this because we don't know who's at risk, if that makes any sense. So every laboring patient is at risk. Um, and so that's what our organization does. We um, support women just like Andrea and her family. We support families who have um, the outcomes that none of us desire, which is the loss of, of mom and or baby. We also have survivors who've lost their babies as well. Many AFE survivors, suffers pretty significant neurologic impairment. Um, Andrea and I are probably the, you know, more high functioning survivors. We have a lot of AFE survivors that um, unfortunately require a lot of assistance from a neurological standpoint. But our goal is to support those families and to sort of be a light to them as they navigate their paths forward, but also to spur research into why this occurs and also help women just like you who are going out and families who are going out and doing blood drives 
We know that COVID had a pretty significant impact on blood donation, which Andrea is why you required that. We know a lot of times during COVID people were on placed on ECMO machines where they were requiring a lot of blood transfusions. Um, and so blood donation is absolutely key. It is key for AFE survivors and it's also key for the most common causes of pregnancy complications like a postpartum hemorrhage. So I really wanna just take a moment to say thank you to both of you for not only helping raise awareness about this sort of rare, mysterious complication, but also for you know feeling spurred into action to do something. So often we have things that happen to us and it's pretty easy to kind of move on and try and not think about something that was so difficult. But I, I really commend both of you for taking this opportunity to to be a light, to do good, um, to raise awareness and to save, save future, future lives, whether it be a cancer patient or God forbid a mother who needs, who needs life-saving blood donation. Thank you so, so much. That was so informative and, and uh, Andrea, your story just is so touching. And Miranda, yours too. Um, Miranda, is there any last thing you'd like to add? No, I think for, um, you know, I, I certainly don't want to frighten people who are pregnant or hoping to become pregnant. Again, those numbers are, you know, pretty rare, but I would encourage women um, and birthing people to talk with their, to talk with their physicians about if they've ever seen an AFE or are they ready for, um, you know, when something doesn't go right. I think a lot of us in our community said, and Andrea and reading some of your, you know, some of your posts and some of your things was, it just didn't feel right. And that's what we are always saying is like, something doesn't feel right. So trusting your intuition, you know your body best um, and being able to convey that. I also just wanna just share that the state of maternal, maternal health in our country is, you know, obviously we know there's a lot going on politically with, um, with women and reproductive rights, but you know, some things, sometimes things don't go well in birth. And so having an open dialogue with either your OBGYN or your midwife or your um, healthcare provider is is really important and, and could potentially save your life. So um, I just thank you both for this this opportunity and um, and just thank anyone if anybody would like to learn more about our organization or more about AFE, you can visit us at afesupport.org um, and certainly reach out. We'd be happy to answer any of your questions. Well, thank you, ladies, once again, for such a, just an inspiring and informational talk on the topic. Um, you guys are unbelievable. And I thank everyone for listening today and, and being a part of this podcast. If, again, if anybody has any questions or would like more information, shoot me a message or, you know, go to Miranda directly at the foundation. Um, thank you guys again for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.